Our scripture passage this evening is Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 28. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 391. Some of you may have noticed I don't have the whiteboard up here. Um, And some of you may have noticed we're not talking about the canons of Dort, although we have started a series on the canons of Dort. Uh, The reason for this is I had to give a chapel message at a seminary this week on Tuesday. And I had uh, told a couple of other guys, uh, a couple of other classmates of mine, that we would do a series together this past week on the story of Jephthah and the book of Judges. So it was a special three-part chapel series on Jephthah. And I figured if I was going to work so hard to come up with something that was edifying for my classmates, I thought it would work for you guys as well. So I changed my evening message to uh, accommodate the work that was already put into uh, this uh, chapel presentation. Um, So our passage is Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 28. Here now... The reading of God's holy word. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commanders so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites. And you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against us that you have attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next they traveled through the desert, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sahon, king of the Ammonites, who, or king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Zahon, however, did not trust Israel 
to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men and encamped the Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people, Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years Israel occupied Heshbon, Aurora, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he blesses the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Part of the reason why we decided to do this series is because there's a long-standing debate amongst biblical scholars concerning whether Jephthah actually um, sacrificed his daughter or not. Um, One view is that she did, she was sacrificed on the altar. Another view is that she was sacrificed figuratively in the sense that she was dedicated to the Lord's service in the tabernacle, and that's the reason why she mourns her virginity rather than her death. Um, but that's not the point of this message, just giving you a little context of the reason why we did this series. Here we see a, an arrival of a Savior. You could even say the, the birth of a Savior, a deliverer of God's people. And Jephthah is entering into this scene in a way that... Uh, anticipates his role. If you look at uh, Judges 9 and 10, you see that Gideon becomes a powerful person. He's from a different tribe of Israel. And at the end of Gideon's career, uh, they want to make him king. And he says, no, I will not be your king. Uh, the Lord will be king over you. But that doesn't, uh, that doesn't uh, avoid the horrible things that come from one of Gideon's descendants, Abimelech, who kills most of the sons of Gideon and seeks to place himself as in a position of ruler, of king. Um, and then we hear that uh, uh, of two short uh, stories or narratives of judges, Tola and, and Jair. Uh, but then we, uh, before that, hear something that's a little bit different. It's something that's starkly in contrast to what, uh, what we've been hearing so far in the book of Judges. And that is that we hear, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is in chapter 10. They served the Baals and the Asherahs and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served them, he became angry with them. This is the same pattern that we see over and over again in the book of Judges. Um, They would serve other gods. And God would be mad at them, or God would be angry at them for their sin. He would hand them over to their enemies, and this is what he does. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. And for 18 years they were oppressed 
uh, all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites, um, until that oppression felt so heavily on Israel that they would cry out to God and say, God, deliver us from this. But here's where this part uh, in the narrative changes. And then it's, this is where it says in verse 10 of chapter 10, Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And the Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Boy, those are not the words you want to hear from God. And then he says, go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites once again cried out to the Lord. And they said, we've sinned. Do whatever you need to do. And so they, they put the gods, the false gods, out from them. And began to serve the Lord. And then we're told the Lord could bear Israel's misery no longer. So he shows compassion on them. And in verse 17 we hear, When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. So here we are looking for the arrival of a Savior, an expectation of a new deliverer who's going to deliver God's people from their enemies, the Ammonites. And the funny thing is, it just so happens to be the most least likely candidate, that of Jephthah. And we see three things about Jephthah in this passage. We see that he's rejected by his people. We see that there's a moment in which the elders of Gilead must come and have some sort of repentance to ask Jephthah to lead them, right? And then we see that Jephthah is a, someone who remembers the redemptive history of his people and how that empowers him to be in a place, a position of justice if there is going to be a battle, war. So let's look at those three things. First is rejected, and we see this in the first three verses of chapter 11 where we're told that Jephthah was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. His brothers cast him out, and he goes to live in the land of Tob. So Jephthah has humble origins. He's of questionable birth. His mother's a prostitute. The son of a prostitute. Uh, and at this time, it would have been illegal for prostitution to be taking place in the land of Israel. So we don't know this, but it's most likely that this prostitute was a foreign woman. So Jephthah is a bit of a mixed breed. He's part Canaanite. He's part Israelite. And in here, we have this interesting phrase. His father was Gilead. And he lives in Gilead, amongst the Gileadites. Now, either Gilead was a very common name amongst the Gileadites, or the biblical author is saying here that nobody really knows who Jephthah's father was. That all the land of Gilead could have been his father. That any man in Gilead could have been his father. The people as a whole in other words, nobody knew his father. And then we read here that Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. Now, if what is say, being said is that 
nobody knows who, Gilead, or who Jephthah's father is, that any man in Gilead could have been his father. That what's being said here about uh, Gilead's wife and, and sons is that all the sons of Gilead, all the men of Gilead said, you are not going to have any part in our inheritance as a people. So you need to be cast out because you are the son of another woman. You're the son of a prostitute. And so he fled and settled in the land of Tob. Uh, Tob is the Hebrew word for good. So this is the good land. He fled to the good land, which may begin to key us into the redemptive characteristics and qualities of what we're seeing here. And here in verse 3, we're told of... um, that a group of adventurers, is the way the NIV translates this, gathered around him and followed him. Uh, some, some other pa- uh, translations say worthless fellows. Or you could say, another usage is found in Nehemiah 5.13, impoverished men. So what's being said here is that those who gathered around Jephthah are the outcasts, the downtrodden, the ragamuffins. Those who were rejected by their people find solace in a leader who has also felt and knows what rejection feels like. And we can speculate that during this time, Jephthah developed as a leader and a warrior fighting against his people's enemies, much like David did in his time of exile from Saul. Running from Saul, David had men that gathered around him, and they would go and battle the enemies of Israel as kind of freelance warriors. And we're told in verse 1 that Jephthah has earned a reputation as a mighty warrior. A mighty warrior. And this part of Jephthah's story may remind us of a certain someone a savior, the savior, who was rejected by the world, rejected by his own people. John chapter 1 tells us that Christ came into this world uh, and he was uh, rejected by his own. And it should be a reminder to us that as Christians, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. We feel like strangers and aliens. We too can be rejected and to not fit into the mold of what the world thinks is popular or in demand or acceptable. And this is why I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, which gives us a really firm application here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8 says, As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's Peter saying here? He's saying, Jesus Christ is the living stone that was rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. That is that Jesus felt the rejection of men, of his own people, but he understood that the most important acceptance comes from the eyes of God, to be chosen and precious in God's sight. And then Peter says, you, Christians, 
are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is to say that if you begin to experience the sense of rejection that your Savior Christ also experienced, may it not be because you're being rude or stubborn or mean-spirited. May it be because you are, as a Christian, being conformed to the image of Christ, who was himself a living stone, rejected by men. Or may we know that whatever rejection and persecution, trials and tribulations that we experience in this life, that we may stand firm in the faith and know that those who trust in the Lord shall not be put to shame. So this is Jephthah's rejection. Well, what about this repentance, a turn of events that comes here? Look at this. Verse 4, sometime later when the Ammonites made war on Israel... The elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. What? They didn't want him. He was rejected, despised. He was a half-breed, an outcast. They kicked him out. They said, you're not going to have any part of our inheritance. And here they come. Now that they're in trouble. And they need a mighty warrior. And Jephthah, of all people, fits the mold. They need a warrior to, to lead them and go out and fight their battles. And the, the, the best and most unlikely candidate is Jephthah. But you see, Jephthah is not special because he is in and of himself a mighty warrior. He's simply in this moment the chosen instrument of Almighty God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, about the Christians there in Corinth. Consider your calling, brothers, sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We as Christians are chosen not because of our unique qualifications, but we are chosen simply because in love God predestined us. And because we should not be surprised that the reason we are chosen is that we are nothing. That in us God may be glorified and get all the glory, that we may not boast in ourselves. We must remember this always as something that marks the Christian life. We must have this always before us in the Christian life. That we are not elect because we are special. We are special because we are elect. If that makes sense. That God is the one who gives us value by his choosing. And it could be very true that he chooses us because there is no inherent value in us. That way his glory may be shown through us. And that's exactly what's happening here in Jephthah's experience. 
He's being used by God as an instrument of God. Well, there's just a picture of repentance here, isn't there? It's not any kind of repentance here that these elders of Gilead are coming to Jephthah. It's the repentance that is required of a Savior. The people of Gilead have come to realize that they have no way of, of escape, no way of overcoming this enemy. Sometime later when the Ammonites made war on Israel, we need a leader. And Jephthah is the man. They need a deliverer. So what do they have to do? They have to humble themselves and seek help from the very person that they had despised and rejected. The first demand of Jesus' public ministry was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And at the Areopagus, Paul said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, Christ, too, has proven himself, but he's proven himself as more than a mighty warrior. He's proven himself as prophet, as priest, and as king. Yet repentance must continue to mark our lives, even as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Repentance is not a one-time event by which we then enter into the Christian life. Repentance is something that marks the Christian life. But unlike the elders of Gilead, we repent to the man who has already been, uh, we repent to the man who's already been made head over us, our chief, right, our Lord and our Savior. And more importantly, we repent to the man who has already paid the price of our previous rejection of him. Therefore, we rest on this unshakable promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is our Savior. But what does Jephthah do here? He shows compassion. He doesn't spit in their face. He, he doesn't say, I want you to show, I want, I want you to feel our rejection feels. It's compassion that comes with a prize, full allegiance. He asks, will I really be your head? Their leader, their king, their savior. It's in correlation with the vow that they made in verse 18. Whoever launches the attacks against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. And notice especially what Jephthah's trials have taught him, his rejection of his own people, his living in the land of Tob. A dependency and trust in the Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh. If the Lord gives them over to me, he says. And then we are told Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. In fact, of all the judges in the book of Judges, the covenant name of God is on Jephthah's lips the most. And his rejection and his times of difficulty, he's become acquainted with his God. And let's look finally at this moment of remembrance, remembering the redemptive history of God's people. So then, following this, Jephthah sends messengers to the Ammonites to give them an opportunity to repent. We see in this moment that he's a man of reason. He's not wanting to go straight to war if it can be avoided. He wants to reason with them and see exactly why it is that they're fighting. But when they refused and made claims on Israel's inheritance as their own, Jephthah responded by showing his intimate knowledge of redemptive history. He gives this long explanation as to the reason why the land that they are in is truly Israel's because God has given it to them. The land between the Arnon and the Jabbok was taken from the Amorites, he says, not the Ammonites. In fact, 
the Ammonites were slaves of the Amorites. And so when God's people attacked and, and, and conquered the Amorites, they freed the Ammonites. Israel left Edom, Moab, and Ammon alone, even restoring land to them by defeating the Amorites who had oppressed Ammon. And Jephthah mocked Ammon's god, Chemosh, who had not protected them from the Amorites. Now Jephthah kind of uses the same tactic of uh, irony here as mockery as God did earlier when he said, why don't you go after the gods you've chosen, see if they'll help you, see if they'll protect you. And provide for you. And plus, it was God who had defeated the Amorites, allowing Ammon to get their land back. He reminded Ammon how God withdrew protection from Moab and destroyed them because they threatened Israel. He reminded them that Israel had been in the land 300 years. If the Ammonites had a legitimate claim to this land, why hadn't they said something earlier? He showed himself to be righteous if this encounter were to come to war, saying these words, in verse 27. I therefore have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Jephthah alone, of all the judges in the book of Judges, confesses the truth that Yahweh is true judge. And in remembering the redemptive works of God, Jephthah places his claims on what is most foundational. He calls to the people of Ammon in warning, reminding them of who the true God is and the promises this God has made to his people. He showed the supremacy of Israel's God and that only by being Israel's friend would they be safe. For God had promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. In the Christian life, we are going to face enemies from both the outside and, unfortunately, the inside. Therefore, we must rest upon the unshakable foundation of Christ, the fulfillment of all redemptive history. Christ is the substance of all the redemptive history by which Jephthah is proclaiming to the pagan Ammonites in this moment. We must know without a doubt that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Him. That's why it is through Him that we utter an amen to God for his glory. Jephthah believed this in his imperfect way, and so must we. For we read that what he did for Israel, he did through faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Therefore we see that Jephthah is not good in and of himself, but only by the grace of God is he used by God to be a deliverer for his people. Jephthah is only good insofar as he points us to Christ, the final deliverer, the true and lasting Savior of God's people, who himself was of lowly birth, questionable birth, who himself was rejected and despised by his own people, who came calling all to repent, who brought a kingdom and through his own body conquered the greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death, 
and who is the substance and fulfillment of all of God's redemptive work, that all promises of God may find their yes and their amen in him. Jephthah points us to Christ, for we shall come to see that he falls short as judge and deliverer, that he may make way for the prophet, priest, and king that is to come. The birth, the arrival of this Savior, will give way to the arrival of the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the true and final deliverer of God's people. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these words that remind us of our great Savior. We pray, Lord, that we would be blessed by them and that we may know truly what Christ has done for us and live our lives in light of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.